Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another brutal week on world markets, as well as in the United Kingdom, uh, in the wake of the trust government's plan to both cut taxes and increase government spending, uh, driving a drop in the pound and a spark uh, spike in borrowing rates, Russia appears to have sabotaged both Nord Stream gas pipelines as a warning to Europe that uh, Europe's uh, own undersea infrastructure is vulnerable as NATO leaders met in Brussels uh, to ramp up aid for Ukraine and more quickly replenish their own depleting weapons stocks. Washington authorized even more aid for Kiev as Moscow formally annexed four provinces uh, of occupied Ukraine, which didn't stop Ukrainian forces from continuing their advance to retake uh, their territory. A lot of news on the commercial aviation Speaking of Russia, Rostec says that it will buy 1,000 Russian jetliners over the coming eight years uh, as Beijing certifies the C-919 regional aircraft uh, and Boeing's 737 MAX 7 faces certification woes uh, in the United States. Taiwan's China Airlines ordered 787s and United Airlines again temporarily suspended service to JFK and this week we promise to discuss the outlook for uh, Boom and its Overture aircraft now that Rolls-Royce has backed out uh, in developing an engine for the supersonic uh, passenger uh, aircraft. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy in Washington, D.C. Guys, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you. Absolutely, Vargo. Thanks. Uh, and thanks uh, very much uh, again. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's annual Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by uh, Leonardo DRS. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by uh, our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, everybody, welcome back again. Ron, uh, start us off. I mean, uh, another uh, brutal week. What were the drivers and how did the group perform? Yeah, it was a, uh, a tough week in the markets. Um, overall, uh, the S&P for the week uh, was down almost 3%. If you look across the, the large cap uh, uh, names uh, in, in our group, uh, Boeing was down almost 8%. Uh, uh, Lockheed Martin was down about 6.5%. Northrop Grumman, almost 2%. Uh, the, the winner on the week really was Raytheon. Raytheon was about flat on the week. Uh, and General Dynamics was down a little over 4%. If, if you look at uh, WTI crude, it was at the end of the week around 80 Brent around 85, uh, the VIX index, uh, an index of volatility and sort of fear in the market was at the higher end of the range that it's, it's been in for a while, uh, above 32. Uh, and then and then if you look at the 10-year, the 10-year at one point uh, was over 4% and it settled in the week just under 4%, around 3.8%. Um, and then the, the treasury yield curve um, is inverted. And for folks that aren't familiar with that, what that means is the shorter term, the shorter dated um, 
uh, bonds have a higher yield than the longer dated ones. Uh, and that, that typically, at least historically, has been a reasonably strong indicator of, um, of, of a recession, either one that you're in or one that's coming. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty, pretty rough week uh, in the markets, I think pretty much across the board. And, and, and how did the group perform? Yeah, so if you look at you know aerospace, um, it everything kind of broadly underperformed um, the the S and P with 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 the exception of Raytheon and Northrop. Everything else was pretty much um, below that. Um, so it was you know, every, everything can, everything got hit this week. I would say it was fair to say that commercial aerospace got hit tougher than defense. And, and I think the fear on commercial aerospace is. Um, a couple of things. One, you know, the news flow you talked about, about the MAX 7 and the MAX 10, you know, at a minimum taking longer to get certified. Um, worst case, don't get certified. But but I think the street is assuming that Boeing gets an extension, but still that just means all that stuff gets pushed out. So Boeing's deliveries will be lower than what anybody thought. Um, but more importantly, we're starting to hear from the clients that we talk to or fear that, you know, this recovery might get cut short by a global recession um, that you know travel is you know doing fine it's doing great right as we've talked about pretty much everywhere except china um but that somehow gets cut short because of um you know the 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 impact that um central banks are having on you know, the global economy um so, so so we're seeing that get reflected and and was there any sort of positive uptick or 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 negative repercussion right i mean at least um, we we did get a budget deal. There was a continuing resolution that's in place uh, until mid December, right until after uh, the election. But there are still a lot of big issues that have got to get sorted out, right? Congress could change hands, uh, both in the House and Senate. It's kind of a sense that Republicans, uh, you know, the Democrats had their bounce, whereas now Republicans are or or might be regaining uh, ground. I mean, any did that you know did that factor into any of the conversations you were having? Yeah, a little uh, bit. I think, you know, I think when discussions around Lockheed Martin, um, yeah, there's, there's still, I think there's a fair amount of disappointment around F-35 um, levels, uh, that sort of thing. But I think broadly, you know, the budget news got kind of buried under the broader volatility, right? I mean, pretty much the conversation that we've had with everybody we talked to is just people glued to their screens watching the volatility because things are moving all over the place. And um, not just on their positions, but I mean, you know, the, the movement in the market, um, if nothing else, is is um, just crazy fascinating. On top of that, you've seen this in the financial press, and this has sort of come up in some conversations, you know, people starting to allude to, wow, is this sort of as bad as 2008? You know, what's going to happen? So, you know, the the fear, it seems like the level of fear in the market is, is, is growing. Again, right. This is a, a mental game. Uh, and it's as bad as you think it is. If you think it's bad, it, you tend to behave badly and make decisions accordingly, right? I mean, that's the complexity of, um, you know, the, the market and how it talks itself into things or, or doesn't talk itself into things that it might, uh, it might need to be talking itself into. Sash, um, talk to us about uh, Europe. Um, you know, certainly a, an action-packed week, uh, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the United Kingdom. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute or, or fold it into the discussion on, on European performance in the wake of uh, British Chancellor uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's plan, cut taxes, raise spending. That sparked some fears um, yeah, on, on markets. Um, you know, walk us through the week and how the group performed. Yeah, OK. So I'm um, very briefly on Europe. It followed fairly much the same pattern as the US. But interestingly, 
the US, uh, you know, Wall Street closed uh, last week down quite badly. Europe actually had quite a good Friday by comparison. Most stocks were up. Um, and so I'm more than a little bit worried about, you know, how Europe opens uh, first thing Monday morning. Um, I've got to be honest, I'm not normally this parochial, but it's been very difficult to think outside of the UK um, this week, because what we have seen has been a truly dreadful market crash caused entirely by political actions that were would have been avoidable um, and where there has been a horrible lack of understanding by politicians of the um, implications of what they're doing in the financial markets. It's, it's been a, a, one of the worst acts of, you know, political economic vandalism I've ever seen, actually. Uh, I don't say that lightly. So what happened was that um, new UK Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng um, had a mini budget. I think it was called a, finance, a fiscal event. Um, and that's a euphemism. But um, uh, uh, Friday last. Um, very, very, well, I would say conventional, um, very aggressive stimulus economics. Cut taxes, hope that that gets the economy growing way faster than it has done um, previously. Um, whether that approach works or not, I, I think that, you know, the current Conservative government would like to think that they're very in tune with uh, how Ronald Reagan used to do things. So if it was good enough for him to cut taxes, it's good enough for the UK to do it. No, it's not. Um, and this the repercussions of this uh, through the week we've just had were absolutely dreadful. Um, why? Firstly, the um, tax cuts are completely unfunded. So it was going to increase the UK uh, budget deficit by another 60, 65 billion a year on top of the costs of subsidies for uh, very high energy costs. So the UK budget deficit is just going to blow out of sight. And the financial markets re um, responded to that in two ways. One, um, uh, the pound moved so close to parity with the US that it was um, embarrassing. I mean, it, it bottomed out at one stage at um, just over a, a dollar and three cents. It's bounced up at the end of the week to about a dollar and eight cents. But remember, at the start of this year, it was in the high 120s. Um, two, interest rates started to um, uh, started to go up or implied interest rates. But actually, more seriously, the UK government bond market broke. You couldn't get liquidity. We're always taught, you know, this is financial markets 101. There is nothing more liquid, no market deeper than, the, you know, the major uh, bond, uh, government bond markets. Uh, and the, you, what, what are referred to in the UK as gilts, uh, gilt-edged stocks, um, should have been up there. But no, they broke. And that had horrible effects on pension funds this week who were forced into selling. Um, and this isn't over. Um, there's about 10 days when the Bank of England is going to support um uh, support the bond market uh, to give everybody a chance to sort things out. But it's a very, very ugly situation. Next, there's going to be more political uh, instability. The Conservative Party is starting to realise that, um, you know, Liz Truss's uh, honeymoon as Prime Minister ended with a absolute crashing thud this week. And the question is going to be, how does the government get out of this? How does the UK get out of this? Uh, it's a uh, it's really been an absolutely shocking week. Um, and um, uh, it's been very hard to focus on great deal else. We were aboard, uh, aboard uh, HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, last week for uh, the Atlantic Future Forum, which was a tremendous event, a lot of fascinating discussions, both on and off the record. You know, the guests on how 
long lived uh, the Trust administration will be in the wake of all of this and and how well relatively Keith Starmer uh, did, uh, Sir Keith, who is the leader of the Labour Party, um, you know, still a sense that it wouldn't be until 2025 and Labour would have to do more uh, rehabilitation before we get there. But sort of the, the sense on sort of what's next for this government, does she stay in power until, you know, I mean, because the Conservative Party Congress is next week, uh, con- excuse me, yes. conference. Yeah, um, I, I, mean, I don't normally like make predictions on how long party uh, party leaders stay in power because I tend to be horribly wrong. I would be astonished if she's in power by Christmas. This has been such an act of economic mismanagement and political misjudgment. Um, uh, and the, the the opinion polls, okay, these are snap polls, but the opinion polls suggest a wipeout of the Conservative Party that's not of a level that we've seen in the UK, but is much more similar to what happened to the Canadian Progressive Party, and I think it was 93. And if you remember, they ceased to exist as a as a consequence of that, um, you, you know, it really has been the fact that mortgage rates uh, in the UK have gone up. You know, generally you've been able to get a fixed mortgage at somewhere between four and five percent. Uh, they were indicated up uh, to seven percent and now up to ten percent this week. That's the sort of thing that sends the UK into a recession and kills governments. Sometimes kills governments for good. So I don't think she's. I don't think she's in power much past Christmas. And then the question is, does the UK have to have an election because there have been too many? unelected leaders uh it becomes quite an interesting sort of moral question there um but i you know the the opinion polls so far um are catastrophic for the conservatives i've never ever seen them uh, this bad yeah the uk labor leader um sir keir starmer uh, he he had his party conference this week frankly all he had to do was not say anything stupid and he did that really well you know he he came across as being a safe pair of hands that gets you a a majority in parliament without even having to get out of bed in the morning in the current circumstances. Um, we'll learn a lot more about policies later on, but actually he doesn't need to have a lot of policies. He just has to be sane and not bankrupt the country. And he seems to be doing that. What does this do for UK defence exports? And what does this tell us about what the outlook for the, the British defence budget is going to be? The administration has talked about a very, very robust spending plan up to 100 to 150 billion more pounds over the next 10 years uh, for defense. That's predicated on a very, very strong economy and a very growing economy. Um, And you're still buying equipment in American dollars at rates that, you know, so talk to us really quickly about what this means for the entire defense ecosystem uh, for the United States, for the United Kingdom, which is very dependent on the United States for its equipment, whether it's the F-35 or the P-8 or the Chinook, or any one of a number of programs? Well, the UK is going to have to become a lot less dependent on the US because we can't afford it. Either that, or we just shrink the armed forces again. It's a really simple equation. But at, you know, at, at parity or close to, the UK can't afford to import defence equipment from anybody. We can't afford to import a great deal from Europe because um, uh, the dollar-euro rate isn't, isn't far off parity. It's about you know, 110. The procurement decision's just got a, a whole lot harder. On the other hand, if there is a UK supplier... They are in a much better position in two ways. First of all, because their product is cheaper. And, you know, most of these products do the same thing. Everyone says, oh, X is better than Y. That's baloney. They're all um, somewhere between an 80 and 85% solution. Um, uh, so, you know, if, if you're selling into the UK as a UK supplier, you have an, an inbuilt advantage. If you're exporting, uh, you also have an advantage because your product just get, got more competitive on the export market. Um, and, you know, that should help over time combat aircraft um, uh, and, and warships in particular, because those are the two main 
uh, UK exports. But I would say that was a very, very long game. As for UK defence spending, um, first of all, I would, you know, uh, forecasts up, up above 100 billion, which are taking um, high levels of GDP growth as, as uh, part of their basis are, you know, they're just smoking something. I wouldn't believe that for one second. But you know, there has been a fundamental change in the political consensus on defence spending in the UK. Keir Starmer is reading from the same sh- uh, hymn sheet as Liz Truss, as is Ben Wallace, as is the Labour Party front bench, which is defence spending should be moving towards 3% you know, in, in, in the early 2030s. That is a massive change from where we've been in the last 25, 30 years, which is defence spending 2% of GDP, because that's the NATO number, and we'll get to or close to that. Um, so I think you know there is some upside, but it seems to be much more likely to be a very J-shaped curve rather than a straight line. Uh, I, anybody who tells you it's just going to go straight up and measure the volume under 150 billion again, that that's just not, um, you know, that that's that's pretty low grade uh, and unrealistic maths at the moment. Richard, I want to bring you into this and, and you know, give you an opportunity to comment on uh, sort of the broader market uh, themes, but also uh, sort of take us into the commercial discussion because we had a lot of news, the C919 certification. We've been talking about that. Uh, for a long time on this program, uh, China Airlines, which is Taiwanese. Uh, so there are people who think like, ah, mainland carriers are buying big Boeings again, which is n- not the case. Uh, then you have the 737, uh, you know, as Ron mentioned, uh, the 737 MAX uh, certification issues, right? Walk, walk us through some of these themes and what do you think that they ultimately mean? Yeah, really big week on commercial. Fascinating stuff. You know, first and foremost, the threat of recession that Ron discussed, that's uh, that's obviously foremost in everyone's mind about, as he put it, derailing the recovery. Um, I understand completely why it might put at risk the RPK recovery, the traffic recovery. What's less clear is how that filters down to jetliner output, because you've got these production delays that have gone on for so long, there's a lot of pent-up demand. And also, you know, don't forget that there are factors determining jetliner demand that are far beyond RPKs. And I think back to 2008, when actually jetliner output growth accelerated despite the recession. And that was for a variety of reasons. It's worth quickly visiting them. You know, what happened then was a wonderful combination of cheap cash, expensive fuel, and China. Um, all right. Well, this time we've got relatively expensive fuel, although it's interesting that OPEC is now, you know, watching oil come down from 125 to 85 and has announced output cuts that could impact that. Uh, we'll see. But either way, if you assume oil in the 80 to 100 range, that's really good for jetliner demand, especially since the new generation, the NEOs and MAXs offer double digit fuel savings. Uh, interest rates, that's a problem. So we'll see where that goes, but it's still not in the point where it is a problem yet. It's something that's worth watching. And then China, not good, double plus bad compared to 2008. That's a major issue. But my point here is that I understand why investors are focused on traffic as potentially being derailed by the recession or a recession if it happens. But what's less clear is that there's going to be any change to Boeing's and Airbus's plan to ramp up jetliner output. I'm a little less concerned about that uh, for all those reasons. Although, again, got to watch it. Um, In terms of MAX 7 to 10, yeah, it became clear that Calhoun and company did not know (laughs) that MAX 7 is nowhere near. We're willing to talk about MAX 7 really has no path forward to being certified within the time frame. That's a lot at the end of this year. And the FAA letter this week made it very clear that that's the case. 
Now, uh, obviously, there's been some news flow about possible exemptions, maybe even an exemption inserted in the NDAA. Maybe that will happen. You know, the Calhoun strategy of holding the MAX-10 the entire program mysteriously hostage um, to this approval rather than requiring the, you know, the, the mandated cockpit changes and all the time consuming and, and training complication associated with that. I don't know if that's going to work. It, it just might. I, I mean, they've got a point. I wouldn't be doing this hostage tactic, but they've got a point. Um, then, of course, there was it's sort of the 787 Taiwanese based uh, China Airlines thing. I mean, the very fact that it's newsworthy that there's like, you know, an order for 24 jets, you know, it's sort of, you know, nation finds tasty crumb behind cushion, that classic, you know, onion headline from the purportedly from the depression. You know, the wide body market's really terrible. But if you just before the recession, sorry, just before the pandemic, you had rate 14 on the 787, 14 per month. So the idea that, oh, 24 over a couple of years, hooray, the wide body market is back. No, no, the wide body market is still awful. And when we talk about jetliner fluctuations, production fluctuations, we're only talking about narrow bodies. The wide bodies are still in a really horrible place. This change is nothing. And then finally, C919, and of course, there was the inevitable collective freakout over China joining and putting pressure on Airbus and Boeing. I'm not having any of it. The best case scenario, scenario is that they start figuring out how to build you know, production-conforming aircraft, and sometime in a few years, it looks like the ARJ-21 every two, you know, every, basically two planes a month at best or something like that. Eventually, they could figure out how to build it, but the more they put pressure on domestic carriers to buy it or to subsidize exports, the more likely it is that any US or other allied administration basically kills the plane, which they can do anytime. This is a Western jet with Chinese characteristics and reinventing it as a proper Chinese jet would take way over a decade and tens of billions of dollars. It's really not realistic anytime soon. So basically the more successful it becomes because of artificial measures like trade barriers or subsidies, the quicker the West can simply kill it anytime it wants or restrict output. Uh, so I'm not at all worried about this as something that impacts the market. Uh, so a fascinating week in terms of commercial news flow, not all of it bad, not all of it good. Um, Ron and uh, Sasha, anything you guys want to add to the commercial uh, discussion? Because I do want to move it along uh, to uh, Nord Stream and what it uh, possibly means from a financial standpoint. Because if I was somebody in, uh, you know, sitting somewhere about markets, I'm going to have to be worried about this, right? I mean, there are also the nuclear risks and the concerns uh, that exist. We always uh, talk about that a little bit in the program. And before we went live, um, we were having kind of a spirited discussion on that. But uh, Ron, any, you know, like, what, what do you want to add to the whole like commercial discussion? And then Sash, want to get your take as well? Yeah, just quickly. I mean, I think on the, the Max 7 and Max 10, it really gets back to, you know, did they get an extension from from Congress or not? Um, we'll see how that all plays out. My guess is probably, but ultimately it just everything, you know, you know Boeing initially said this year they'd deliver uh, 500 737s and then it was 400. And, you know, if you look at what they've been delivering, it's probably going to be closer to 350 when it's all said and done. Um, so it, you know, just kind of to this narrative that, um, you know, forecasting where the company's going to go, what they're going to do has become very difficult for the company to do uh, for whatever reasons. Um, and I think that's one important thing. And then two, uh, on the 919, I don't think anybody expects it to be delivering many airplanes anytime soon. And Richard's points are, I think, all right on. 
but it, it just kind of shows that, yeah, you know, there's, there's another entity trying to get into this market. It's state sponsored by a state that's got, you know, big pockets. And, you know, if, if Embraer could do it with much smaller pockets, China can most certainly do it with much bigger pockets. And now it's just a matter of time. I would agree with you on that, by the way, it's, 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 it's doable, right? I mean, if you, if you went back and, you know, your iPhone is about as sophisticated of a device as you can get, and it's made in China. Uh, and the whole drive now by Apple is to try to figure out is, you know, Hey, can we, uh, can we, can we do it in India, uh, for, for example, which is at least a, at least a democracy and, you know, sort of not China, uh, Sash, your, your take on, on all this, on this news flow and what it all means. Um, I mean, just uh, I agree with Richard. Actually, I think it, you know, paradoxically, the more successful the 919 is in in production terms, and you know, the Chinese the bar is very low in China. I mean, you know, uh, frankly, um, even a a small number a month would would be high rate given historic programs, or, or they actually need to keep the US on side uh, because if they don't, then the program dies from lack of supply. Uh, and on and on any of the other jet programs or anything else or anything that you know like any interesting conversations with folks at Airbus, uh, or do we move on to Nord Stream uh, and how Europe manages to work through the rearmament? As I said, the UK has been in a financial disaster this week. It's not <laughs> a time to be looking at a lot of civil programs. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you were you were dealing with with the uh, elephant with the running chainsaw in the room. So I know that you may not have noticed whether there were Ming vases on the mantelpiece. I don't know if that makes any sense. Anyway, um, quite good. Uh, I think you, you you forget the shocks, but other than that, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And and there was there was there was the hurricane shark, right? Uh, unfortunately, because of all the people who've been uh, so badly affected and and uh, are. Our thoughts go out to all the uh, folks impacted, really, by the last two uh, hurricanes, Fiona as, as well as uh, Ian, uh, which is going to be economically very damaging. Actually, uh, Ron would, would like to uh, get get just very quickly, like, are, how are folks on the street sort of factoring in the economic damage of these storms, right? I mean, Congress is going to be out of session, is not going to deal with it. But the extent of the damage in Florida is just absolutely horrendous. Is the market responding in any way about you know what this potentially means for you know defense spending, government spending? We're going to have to uh, have uh, a debt ceiling increase uh, next year. Uh, the president's college plans, which he appears to be dialing back, uh, are estimated to cost about four hundred billion dollars uh, over the coming decade. Um, right? I mean, that's a lot of money, uh, but it's over a coming decade. Uh, and they're, you know, right. I mean, the government makes all sorts of changes in policy to try to make that number a little bit smaller sometimes, or, or sometimes bigger sort of any, any, um, quick impact before we go to the Nord Stream discussion. Yeah, not yet, honestly, you know, I don't think okay. that's factored into people's, people's thoughts. I mean, I think there's probably going to be more focus on what happens on midterms and then, and then they'll think about that. Right. Okay. And, and what's sentiment now? I mean, what's, what's sentiment that Republicans take both houses? Um, I, I don't think it's quite that refined. I think, you know, the sentiment is that Republicans will get some gains, um, but not necessarily that they take both houses. And, and your, what is your analysis? Your, your analysis is not yet out on that, is it? Nope, not yet. That's right. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> so we'll let the audience know you're working on it. And when you're ready to talk about it, we can talk yeah. about it. Uh, I didn't mean to jump the shark, uh, no pun intended on that. Sash, uh, Nord Stream. 
Um, fascinating set of com conversations. It was a good time to be aboard uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, for that with the Chief of Defense Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican. Uh, you know, certainly one of uh, the alliance's great uh, military thinkers and innovators, uh, as as well as uh, not not just uh, uh, Admiral Radican, but Ad Admiral Sir Ben Key, the first Sea Lord, and uh, uh, General Sir Patrick uh, Sanders, uh, the Chief of the General Staff, who's another uh, very very strong intellect. A lot of discussion on 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 threats, on innovation. Uh, both Admirals uh, Radican and Key noted. Uh, let's wait for where the investigation takes us, you know, whether or not the Russians were the source of the sabotage of the two pipelines. Um, and but that undersea infrastructure, there were warning networks, it's being monitored, obviously, a lot of ships doing it, not just on the part of the UK infrastructure, but as well as uh, from the standpoint of the alliance. Uh, and, you know, it, whenever asked how the United Kingdom and the alliance should respond to this, the answer was, look, we've thought this through. There would be a response, and we're certainly not going to make that public at this point. Uh, let's just wait for things to play out. From, from your perspective, what are the implications and how are financial markets looking at this? Because there's a vast array of infrastructure, and if the Russians can destroy Nord Stream uh, 1 and 2, um, they certainly could do, you know, I mean, not only was that economic and environmental vandalism, but the message was very, very clear. I can do this for communications cables and everything else that's running under there. And, you know, and they did it, by the way, on the day that the new pipeline between Poland, Denmark and Norway opened. Right. So th that was an implicit message. You know, if I can do it to this, I can do it to that. Sort of take it away in terms of what do you think the implications are and how people are it, responding and how yeah, people I, should respond. Anyway, there you go. I, I don't actually think that the immediate reactions to the I mean, th three separate explosions on two pipelines. Um, one, Nord Stream 1, which has been supplying gas to uh, Germany for, I think, at least 10 years. Nord Stream 2, if you remember, never actually uh, got started, but was still full of pressurized, full of gas uh, in the event that it might do. Um, I think the European politicians have got a lot further than worrying about the fact that this means that even if there was peace in, in Ukraine, Russia physically cannot supply gas to Europe this winter now because it'll take six months to repair these pipelines. Um, couple of points worth making. First of all, of course, paradoxically, you know, the Nord Stream pipelines are owned by Gazprom. So um, there's been no harm done to Western infrastructure. But what it does do is means there's this force majeure situation where Gazprom can say, well, we can't supply um, uh, gas to Europe because, uh, you know, those, those filthy Americans have, have destroyed our pipelines. Nobody believes that, but nobody can disprove it either yet. Um, you know, this means Europe is going to have a very, very cold winter if it wasn't going to uh, anyway. The longer term ramifications of what else can the, Europe, that can the Russians do to uh, Europe's undersea infrastructure? Um, I think those are, you know, politicians will start thinking about those now. But I think the, the immediate market impact was there's going to be no gas. Uh, whatever you had thought before, there is going to be no gas. And that's the that's the big implication. And that means whatever the... Um, whatever's happened to the gas prices so far, and remember most countries are subsidizing their populations in the tens of billions of euros, sterling, whatever, uh, this winter, that, that is now absolutely assured. So it's ramping up the pressure on European governments and you know, supposedly making European governments aware of quite how expensive it is to take Russia on 
uh, over Ukraine. Obviously, this then ties into the broader nuclear uh, discussion as well about whether or not Putin is becoming more dangerous uh, or or not. I, I think there's a sense he becomes more dangerous, although um, still a lot of discussion about whether or not it manifests itself uh, in, in terms of uh, a nuclear exchange. We should give a shout out to the Norwegians that are working hard uh, to try to address that, right? I mean, Cheap gas also made for German industry to be very inefficient. Great uh, um, a number of stories on that, right? I mean, ultimately, if, if you're more energy constrained, you tend to be somewhat more energy efficient in your installations uh, than you do if you have, you know, a view of sort of limitless cheap energy uh, at, 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 at hand. Um, I don't know if you want to have any discussion on the on the um, on the nuclear weapon side of things, and I'll I'll leave that open for Iran and Richard to jump in on it in a minute. But what I'm curious about were the meetings that are in in Europe, um, the NATO meetings, in order to be what's the next phase of assistance? Right, the United States, the Pentagon, setting up a new command to help arm uh, Ukraine. Uh, but the other issue is how you refill weapon stocks. Uh, and there was an important meeting of national armaments directors last week uh, on that very uh, issue. How does this manifest itself and what are reasonable timescales and what are you picking up from folks about what this actually means uh, and how quickly stocks that have become quite depleted get refilled, whether it's for artillery or multiple launch rocket system launches or in-laws or javelins or stingers. I mean, you know, the conversation in the United States is this is going to take a couple of years to do. And that assumes we we're, you know, moving, you know, with some alacrity and it, and it seems like we're not moving maybe with the speed that an urgency that we need. What's, what's sort of the nature of the debate and discussion and what are you, what are, what are your senses on all this? I mean, my, my sense is that the industry, uh, by which I mean the, the stocks, the companies that, that we all talk to, are very, very frustrated by the fact that there's been a lot of talk about European rearmament and, and remarkably little of it has come through to orders so far. Some short cycle stuff, but only a little bit of short cycle stuff. And the vast majority of munitions, let alone systems that have been supplied to Ukraine, um, have you know, there's been no thought about replenishing those stocks yet. So, I mean, we, we did some analysis back at the, the beginning of this, and we, we hold by that. Ammunition, simple ammunition, is roughly a six to 12 month uh, process once the order is placed, but nobody's placing orders at the moment. Um, once you get into missiles and any sort of complex munition, so here we're talking about the GMLRS round that is used um, in the classic M M270 MLRS and, and HIMARS, it's anything between one to two and a half years. And I would say GMLRS is probably in the middle of that. A, um, uh, a Javelin is at the upper end of that, Enlaw probably at the upper end of that as well. So we're nine months into this war and there have been no new orders. And you can see that in the um, Pentagon Green Book. You know, they, the, um, we know what the ML GMLRS production rate is and it's 6,000 missiles a year, hasn't changed. Um, uh, there have been some orders for anti-armor weapons from some countries uh, but it's very, very low level at the moment. So there are some big gaping holes in European and to an extent uh, US uh, magazines, and they're not being filled. Armored vehicles, that's two to, two to three years plus from uh, for, for an in-service vehicle. Combat aircraft and helicopters, you know, you're talking about up to, um, up, to, up to four or five years before you can replace those. But very little of that's been supplied to uh, Ukraine yet. So... Um, We've, you know, I would say that the single most important munitions that uh, NATO, but specifically the US has got to be talking about is Javelin and GMLRS, because those are the in-demand weapons. Those are the weapons that um, 
given enough of them, the Ukrainians can make astonishingly good use of, particularly GMLRS, um, and can use in vast quantities if they're given enough of them. Got to start get the production, start the production rate uh, up. And until we see signs of that, and effectively, that's probably going to be the question for every Lockheed Martin quarter, quarterly call. Till that happens, rearmament isn't happening. Richard and Ron, your take on all of that. Um, and and Ron would be curious, you know, what investors are asking you about Nord Stream and, you know, on on nuclear risk and and what what all of that means. But Richard, want to give you uh, just a chance to comment on it because I know that you know, even though you're on the uh, military aviation side of it, you do keep an eye on what, um, you know, where where things are going on the weapons side of things. And so, what do you what do you because right? I mean, we're also in a moment of transition. The Pentagon is also looking at newer systems. So instead of saying like, hey, let's just you know put back into production stingers, for example. Right. Do we look at other kinds of weapons? Uh, you know, part of the hyper, the Raytheon, uh, the award on hypersonics came at a time when when the when when the Pentagon was sort of slowing down, like, well, let me, you know, instead of buying a whole bunch of systems that are, you know, might be in the current inventory, I may want to, you know, say, put a pause and um, I'd be buying more of anything that has range and precision, but sort of want to get your sense first and then on yours. Yeah, you know, one of the most um, obvious uh, part of it is, you know, there's already been a, a, an emphasis on emerging technologies in the uh, the underwater unmanned systems realm. And this is obviously going to greatly increase that drum beating. But also, I think systems that emphasize gray zone conflict, you know, there's sort of been this narrative that defense budgets are going to go up and shift towards peer adversary conflict. I totally subscribe to that, but it's more complicated than that. This reminds us that not all peer adversary confrontations involve a direct shooting war with lots of missiles being fired. There is that, but there's also gray zone conflict, which calls for a lot of systems that might not be, you know, just kill lethal, et cetera, but rather just a bit more subtle. And uh, you've seen over the past two decades that emphasis on a wild proliferation of different drones in the air. You could easily see exactly the same emerge if it's not already underway uh, with ocean going unmanned systems that especially particularly deep ones. Um, and I, I think that the uh, you, you know United States Navy uh, has always been a pioneer on uh, you know unmanned underwater systems going back you know four or five decades uh, right uh, and has certainly been talking about the importance of having such unmanned uh, you know autonomous systems uh, for for dangerous uh, you know dirty uh, and dull work. Uh, and so you can imagine there could be quite a role uh, in this. And obviously, our Swedish friends are very, very sophisticated, as are our Danish and Norwegian friends in terms of the capabilities uh, that they have in this uh, space as well. Ron, uh, just to you know, get, get your sense on what investors are telling you about Nord Stream, nuclear risk, and anything else, uh, and how they're, uh, they're, they're thinking about it, right? I mean, the, the good news insofar as there is good news right on the on the nuclear side of things the administration appears to be have been with its allies and partners thinking through scenarios even if they don't think that that's necessarily something that's going to happen but the more cornered putin gets the more dangerous he gets this is a way of acting out and saying hey uh, i can hold at risk your uh, undersea infrastructure be careful it's also a hey i just blew these up so uh haha uh, you're gonna have a cold winter sort of your, your sense and what investors are telling you and how you see it, what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the focus in the investment community is more on the uh, economic impact on Europe and and what that means uh, in terms of, um, you know, energy markets and the, and the broader, you know, in the broader economy. 
Um, and there's not a heck of a lot of discussion in the investment community about, you know, kind of a, a nuclear threat. Um, so, you know, hopefully that's right. Um, we'll see. Um, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's, I don't know, it seems like the next step for um, Putin is escalation and along what vector we'll see, right? I mean, you know, hopefully it's not uh, a, a nuclear path, but we'll see. I mean, it just seems like that's his next step. So um, and we'll see how that plays out. And I think all eyes are on, you know, sort of what the cornered or increasingly cornered rat uh, is uh, is is going to be doing. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I would be remiss if I did not uh, raise Boom Supersonic. This is an issue which over the past many weeks we have said we're going to discuss, and then we end up not discussing. Rolls-Royce dropped uh, as the engine developer uh, for the program. Uh, certainly some orders a couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked about a new set of orders that came through, and now uh, no engine I, I suppose we should start with Richard on this because he's the biggest fan of supersonic transport. Richard, uh, take it away. And then, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes. So, uh, you know, if you can keep it a little bit brief, um, I also want to get Ron and, and Sasha's take on uh, what this means ultimately as well. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, any doubt about this program being kind of, shall we, to put it gently, farcical? Uh it sort of seems to be evaporating quickly because flight, our good uh, friends at flight went out of their way to also ask Honeywell and Saffron and other folks would they be willing to do what uh, what GE Honeywell, sorry, GE Pratt and Whitney and now Rolls-Royce are not willing to do, which is develop an engine. And they all said, no, no engine. So they signed a deal this week with, you know, Boom did with uh, a sustainable aviation fuel provider to emphasize that somehow, you know, supersonic commercial transport is so ecologically friendly because of SAF, magic wand of SAF. Uh, raising the question of what exactly will be burning that SAF because it's still a glider. Um, but, you know, they've attracted 600 million, which I think is the point of this venture to just attract cash and keep going and do some fun design work and get out there and market and get headlines. And they'll do that for some time. And, and by the way, I think I think ecologically better. Right. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a zero footprint, but I think you have to you know, acknowledge anybody who's moving to a more sustainable uh, energy uh, uh, supplies. But uh, well, but, I would I would just point out that hydrocarbons are hydrocarbons. You know, if you're making SAF, you're only burning that SAF in the the other fungible elements of the world energy supply faster if you're flying at Mach 1.7. <laughs> Correct. I, I, and and your, your point your point is taken. Uh, Ron and then uh, Sash, uh, bring us home. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's a pretty severe setback, right? Because, I mean, actually, I don't know how committed Rolls was to it in the first place, right? But um, you need an engine, <laughs> right? It's just kind of that simple. Um, and there's just not that many engine suppliers, right? So... Um, without an engine, you're, you're really not going anywhere. Um, so we'll see. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the boom team um, has some money and uh, they're clever. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but, you know, to bring an aircraft like this to market, it's, um, you know, if it is 600 million that they have or whatever it is, I'm, I'm not uh, on the top of mind what it is. It's a lot more than that. Right. I mean, it's, it's billions of dollars. Right. So uh, on the financial front, it's going to take more and, and most certainly it's going to take an engine. Uh, but, so, so we'll see where it goes. What, what, let me just uh, quickly ask you an engineering question, right? I mean, the um, Olympus uh, was uh, the power plant for uh, the Concorde. That engine was a staple engine driving everything from uh, British aircraft carriers uh, to uh, British bombers, uh, right, uh, ultimately. 
Um, why not just make some adaptation of an existing military engine in order to be able to do this? Uh, you know, you've got General Electric just developed, uh, you know, it's a three cycle adaptive engine. Is there is there not something that exists out there uh, in the military space that can then be adapted uh, yeah, for no, this mission no. ultimately? Yeah, there absolutely is, right? It's just that adaptation will take some investment to do, right? And, 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 and then who's going to pay for that? You know, is the airframer going to pay for it? Probably not. So then you need an engine manufacturer who's willing to make that investment. I mean, that adaptation is less expensive, obviously, than doing a whole new clean engine. Um, but but it does take money and time to pull all, all that off. And you, and you need one of the engine manufacturers to do that, right? So you know, could a GE or Pratt do that? Sure, they could. They just have to want to. Or, yeah, and I should have said Pratt, right? I mean, uh, you know, and with a, a whole vast array of power plants the company has. Sash, uh, bring it home. You get the last word. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Boom doesn't have very much money. 600 million is chump change for developing any civil aircraft of this size, let alone a supersonic one. Um, that, you know, that that really is, that's barely a year's R&D for a, for a program of this level. Um, secondly, military engine. Oh, sorry. Um, secondly, actually, Rolls-Royce. Uh, very interesting reading Rolls-Royce's press releases and so forth. All they ever said was, we announced a collaboration with Boom to explore a propulsion system. They never said we're developing it. So anybody who thinks that they that Rolls was committed to developing something, no, they, they were just looking at stuff. And I think Rolls has decided to, you know, de-emphasize this bit of supersonic because it's a lot of money for very, very little financial upside. Um, there's only five companies in the Western world that can produce a fairly military uh, engine at the moment. In Europe, Rolls-Royce and Snecma, and in the US, G, Pratt, Honeywell. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a very, very small um, uh, number of companies that can do this. The problem with, with putting a military engine uh, or, or problems are, first of all, technology. There's a lot of technology in a, a modern military engine that you cannot put on a civil engine because that technology then leaks. Uh, and so you can't use a state-of-the-art military engine period. Second problem, though, is, you know, the thing that's killed supersonic flight in the past, noise. Military engines are not tailored in particular to, to reduce noise. They are designed to produce superlative performance. So taking a military engine and, de and you know, quietening it is remarkably expensive, and manufacturers aren't that interested in that bit of the process, even though Boom would be the only four-engined civil airliner flying probably by the time it comes out, and therefore would have real novelty value, as well as a rather attractive 1950s aesthetic, um, because it looks just like a B-58 Hustler. Um, so, you know, I think Rolls having, um, you know, decided to stop exploring collaboration, it kills this program. Um, and, uh, you know, 600 million, the, the question for Boom is going to be really, do they hand that back to their investors or not? Just finally, on on Rich's point about SAF, and I completely agree with that. Um, the problem is that civil aviation is committed to to going to net zero, not just getting emissions down. Um, you can't plant enough trees. You know, you'd be, you'd, uh, there, there isn't, there just aren't enough trees that you could go out and plant to offset this. SAF only gets you a certain point of the way. SAF is very expensive, and by all forecasts, is going to continue that way. You only had to listen to Airbus the other week, so I think this is a dead program. Guys, uh, thanks very much as always. I'm sorry to end it on uh, such a sad uh, note uh, because who isn't a fan of the B-58 Hustler uh, ultimately? Um, everybody, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day, a uh, great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us, Vago. Uh, always a pleasure.
Yeah, thanks so much, Argo. Really appreciate it, Vago. Great to be on.